Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. So my name is Colin, and I got in trouble when I was a kid. Anybody else get in trouble just a little bit when they were a kid? I, I think I got in a little bit more trouble than most of my siblings. My sister over here might be able to rival me. I don't know. But anyway, I remember when I really got in trouble, uh, I would have to meet my dad in the bedroom, and he would have the spanking stick in his hand. And I remember just kind of that that feeling of standing there, kind of standing like this, and preparing myself. And I remember the one thing my dad said almost every time I got a spanking. And I don't know if somebody ever said this to you, but he would say, Colin, this hurts me way more than it hurts you. And I was like, he's such a liar. How, how can that be? How can that be true? And I remember taking my life in my hands one time and saying something like, well, if that's the case, then maybe I should spank you. And that was a really bad idea. I got, I got extra spankings that day. And when you're a kid, you don't understand. You don't understand discipline. You don't understand, like, why would my parents do this to me? They're grounding me or spanking me or whatever it may be. Um, it doesn't seem like we ever deserve it, right? And then when you get to be a parent, you're like, oh, that kind of makes sense now. I see. Part of our role as a parent is to help train our kids and send them in the right direction. And when they go the wrong direction, to help them, to guide them, to turn them around, and to do what it takes to make that happen. And so disciplining our kids is not fun, at least for most of us. Hopefully it's not fun. But it's not supposed to be fun, but it's supposed to be part of our job when we love our kids is to help guide them back to the right path when they leave the right path. And I think that's true also in our relationship with the Lord. I think as we really dive deep into Scripture, we realize that God does a lot of punishing. We read about it in Scripture, but he's always doing it out of love. He's doing it to guide his people back to the path that he wants us to be on. He knows that every sin path is a dead end, and he wants us to walk a path that leads to life. And so we see that throughout Scripture. And so today we're in the second week of our summer series on the Minor Prophets called U-Turn Required, which again is just the whole idea that if we're going to live the life that God wants us to, and we find ourselves going a different direction, it requires us to turn around, to make a U-turn, to go back to the Lord in order to live the life that he's promised for us. And so I'm going to throw the timeline up again here. Uh, The problem is, today it's really not all that helpful, because we've got Joel up there, and he was working in Judah with the southern kingdom, but really we don't know for sure when he should fall on this timeline. Lots of people have them, lots of different places, and we can kind of get some clues from the text about when he showed up and when he did his thing as the Lord worked through him. But that brings me to the backstory of Joel. And so I want to tell you, uh, I just want to go through real quick everything that Scripture tells us about Joel, okay? 
And so I'm going to start in verse 1 of this book. And it tells us that Joel's dad's name was Pethuel. And that's it. That's all we get. That's the totality of everything Scripture tells us about who Joel was. It tells us his dad's name. And so Joel is a little mysterious. We don't know where he was from necessarily. We don't know when he was working. Uh, We get some clues from the text because he talks about the kingdom of Judah and he talks about Jerusalem, that he was speaking to Judah, but he doesn't actually even refer to any kings. Usually the, the prophets are going directly to confront a king and the sin that they're leading the nation in, but he doesn't, he doesn't mention any kings. In fact, he doesn't even mention any sins in particular. He, he's not calling anything out specifically. And so you have to read into the text a little bit more, and the reason some people would pit him later is because he seems to pick up on a lot of themes of other prophets. It seems that he knows the prophets well, and that he, he's... He's talking about some of the same things, and he knows the story of God's people. He knows their habit of sin, especially idolatry. And so we just assume, as he's talking in his prophecy in this book, that he's talking to God's people about those same things. And he's calling them back to God from idolatry and from sin. And so he's aware of the current issues. He's aware of the continual problems. And this book of Joel, is, it's amazing poetic poetry. We get all these kind of, this language that's sometimes hard to understand, just like poems often are. They're pretty, but you're like, what are they talking about? At least that's me when I read poetry. And so you just have to kind of work your way through it. And this has some things that you would expect, and they're themes that you're going to see throughout this series. Things like judgment and calls for repentance and the hope for God's mercy for sinners. And one of the other things that Joel is really big on is he's big on this idea of the day of the Lord. He talks a lot about the day of the Lord. And you'll see that in some places, uh, in some of the other books that we're going to talk about. But when he talks about the day of the Lord, oftentimes most of us think like down the road, we're thinking at the end times, the day of the Lord, when he's going to come back and judge all things and make all things right. And that is what most people would say, the big day of the Lord. That's the day of the Lord. But the prophets use language from that to talk about other days of the Lord. And what they're talking about is when God breaks into history to intervene and to do things. And you'll see uh, in this book and others that the day of the Lord can be a couple different things. One, it can be when they're talking about judgment, God breaking in to judge or punish people. But the day of the Lord also includes God's mercy and his grace when he comes in to save his people from things. And so we get that language throughout the book of Joel, the day of the Lord. And he uses these two poems right up front, two of them both about locusts, bugs. And I was thinking last week, like, Pastor Dan always has the coolest illustrations, right? He had like these bags of barley or something up here and silver coins. So I'm like sitting there during the sermon thinking like, can we drop locusts from the ceiling? How would that work? I don't think it would work. I'll just talk about them. But we're talking about locusts, bugs, and God using bugs to bring judgment on his people. And so we get two poems back to back, chapters one and chapter two, about 
locusts. And so in chapter 1, he tells of this recent devastating locust plague that has happened. And here's how it starts. He says, Hear this, you elders. Listen, all you who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell their children and their children tell the next generation. Has it ever happened in your day or the day of your ancestors? And when I first read that, I thought, obviously, rhetorical, no, it's never happened. I thought, no, actually, yes, the answer is yes. Yes, it has happened in the days of their ancestors. And when he says that, they probably start thinking immediately back to Pharaoh and the plagues and when God sent a plague of locusts on Egypt. Because Pharaoh had a hard heart. And he wouldn't let God's people go to worship him. And so this is something that was familiar. But then it was God sending this kind of plague on their enemies. Now he's sending it on his own people. But again, it's just locusts, right? It's just bugs. How bad can that be? Well, he tells us because he goes on in verse 4 to say, What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. And what the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. And what the young locusts have left, the other locusts have eaten. It's just this idea of like one just after another, after another. If they leave anything behind, the next swarm is going to come and eat it up. His point is that nothing is left. That this punishment, this judgment affected everything and everybody. And so we see the devastation he talks about. Who did it affect? Well, it affected, he starts with an interesting one, the drunkards. He says, you drunkards, it's time for you to weep because there is no more wine. The locusts have eaten up all the vines and the grapes. You have no wine left for you. And then he moves from the drunkards. It's like this, he's giving you both ends here, I guess, in his mind. You have the drunkards and you have the priests and then everybody kind of in between. But the drunkards, no wine for you. And the priests, there's no wine for you. But now it's for offering. And there's no grain offering. There's nothing for you to offer and worship because it's all been eaten. It's all been destroyed. And then the farmers have no more livelihood or sustenance. Their crops are gone. Their animals are dying because they have nothing to feed them. And finally, he gets even to the animals and says... They're dying off because they have nothing to eat. He even talks about the wild animals. The water has dried up. There's nothing for them to drink. Everything is gone. Their sin has caused amazing, incredible, overwhelming destruction. And they're suffering because of it. And Joel says right at the end here, Surely the people's joy has withered away along with everything else. Their joy is gone. And so what does Joel do? He calls on the priests to lament. He says, Let all those who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It's close at hand. He wants them to mourn. He wants them to call on the name of the Lord. In fact, Joel even as they're doing it, he says, put on sackcloth, sackcloth and mourn and weep. And then join, uh, Joel joins them. And he calls out on the name of the Lord, asking for his grace and his mercy. And in the end, 
we're left to wonder what's going to happen. And then he turns immediately after the first poem about devastation from locusts to the next one. And now he's speaking of a judgment yet to come, another even greater devastation. And while it seems like he's talking about locusts, he starts using different kind of language. And this is where like the poetry piece kind of gets hard because people fall in different places on this too. Now he's, he never mentions locusts, but he keeps saying these things, that are, this army that's coming is like an army. It's like horses. It's like chariots. But he's still using the same swarming language of locusts. And so I think he's talking about, at least it makes sense to me, another even worse swarm that is coming. It's on its way. And this is an army that's led by the Lord. Again, here's what he says. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? I would be scared if I heard that, of what was coming. In the face of this coming judgment, Joel turns up the volume. Where he was talking before, telling the people to lament and to cry and to weep, now he turns it up and he says he's moving from lament to repent. And he's calling them to do even more. And Joel's going to use this language uh, here, rend your heart. And what does that mean, rend? The, the word rend just means to tear into pieces. Tear your heart into pieces. I look at these pictures. I chose these because I just thought in my head, I don't know what their actual story is, but I just in my head, I thought, okay, if someone had done something wrong and they looked like this, that gives me the picture of rending your heart, of someone that's actually sorry for what they've done. Instead of having hearts like Pharaoh's, hard hearts, God is looking for tender and broken hearts. And so in verse 12, he says, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, all of it, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Let me stop there for just a minute. It was common in that day when someone was going through something terrible, a tragedy happened, they lost a loved one, something was happening in their community, or when they were just very sorry for their sin. You'll see it a lot in Scripture where people would tear their clothing and they would tear their robe, they would tear their garments. And that was a sign of being sorry. That was a sign of, of being sad over what has happened to you or what you've done. But God also knew that sometimes it was just for show, right? Sometimes it was like us when we're little kids and our parents tell us to apologize to our brother or sister for hitting them or messing with them or whatever, and we get, you know, it's just like, sorry. Like, that's, that's very genuine, right? And God knows that that's the hearts of his people sometimes too. It's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you think, I want it to look like I'm sorry, but he knows that their heart in their heart, they're not sorry. And so he's saying to them, I don't want you tearing your clothes. I want you tearing your heart. I want your heart to be broken over your sin. I want to know that you have a desire to turn around and go the other way, not just to make me think that you care. 
And then he gives these incredible words. Return to the Lord your God. Why? For he is gracious. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. So here we get another flashback to Exodus. And it's a story that they would have known well. It's You remember when Moses comes down off of the mountain with the Ten Commandments and he sees Aaron and the people have built this golden calf and they're worshiping an idol and he throws the law down the tablets and they break. And then he ends up going back up onto the mountain to plead the case of the people. And God shows mercy and he gives Moses the law again, two new tablets. And he comes as he's standing on the top of the mountain there before God, we get these words from Exodus 34, 5 and 6. It says, Then Moses, or then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And so as they think back to this, they think back of the situation that people were in at completely, at God's mercy in the midst of their sin, they find themselves now in the same position. And he's saying to them, if you will turn back, if you will come back to your God, if you will rend your heart and be truly sorry and repent for your sin, this is the God, the same God that we still serve, who is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger. And we might just find mercy in our situation. And so they're told to rend their hearts, but how? How do you do that? And so Joel gives them this list. If you were to just read through uh, 12 through 17, you would see two times in there he tells them, return to your God. Two times he tells them to fast. Two times he tells them to weep. He tells them to mourn. He tells them to gather together. You get, he starts talking about bring the little babies, bring the people at their wedding, tell them like, put a hold on it and bring them in. Everybody, no matter what they're doing, bring them together before the Lord and to consecrate them again as God's holy people, to remind them of who they are and what their lives are to be about. And then finally, he tells the priest to plead for the people, to ask God again, for his mercy. And after all that, Joel then gives this beautiful poem, this picture of how gracious and compassionate God actually is in the face of genuine repentance. It's a promise of restoration and of blessing. In 2.18, he says, Then the Lord was jealous for his land, and he took pity on his people. And then Joel gives three wonderful promises of restoration and blessing. First, he says that God will take the attacking army and he will drive them away. He says, I will drive the northern horde far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land. Its eastern ranks will drown in the Dead Sea and its western ranks in the Mediterranean. What a picture this is. He's talking about sending them back north, which at that time, it was always their worst enemies that were coming from the north. And it was always the false gods that were coming from the north. And so the Lord's saying, I'm going to take this attacking army. I'm sending them to the north, to a desolate land. And he gives us a clue to the size of this army. 
whether it's people or locusts, he says, as I drive them north, one side of them is going to drown in the Dead Sea and the other side in the Mediterranean. Those are about 60 miles apart, I think. And so you think of a marching army that's 60 miles wide to be able to reach both the bodies of water, whether that's literal or not. The point is, it's huge and it's overwhelming and God has the power to drive them away and turn things around. And secondly, he promises that he will give back some of what they lost. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, he says. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God. After hearing this long list of everything that's been devastated and demolished, he's saying each of those, he almost does like a one-for-one when you look at the two side by side. This is gone, I'm giving it back. This is gone, I'm giving it back. I'm going to give you back everything that you've lost. He's so faithful. And then most importantly, he promises his presence with his people again. In Joel 2.27, he says, Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. I will be with you again if you will turn back to me and repent of your sins. And relationship is restored. And right after that, he moves from talking about his restoration and his promises in the moment, and he starts looking far ahead to future days where the Lord God's presence will be experienced in even more profound ways. He says, And afterward, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And if those words sound familiar, it's because Peter quotes them in his first sermon after Pentecost, on that day when Lord, the Lord sends his spirit on the people and they all start speaking in other languages so everyone can hear the good news of Jesus. And those standing around watching assume that they're drunk because they don't understand what they, they're saying. And so Peter stands up in defense of them, and he quotes this very passage that Joel spoke about so many years before about what it will be like one day when the Lord pours out his spirit and we experience him in a whole new way. And then he ends the book by giving two more promises that are like these end time day of the Lord promises. He talks about one day all nations will be judged. Not only will he be with his people in a special way, all nations will be judged and all things will be made new. People, creation. And we live in that kind of strange there but not there now but not yet. We're in the middle of a time where he has poured out his spirit. We have access to God in a way that they didn't at that time. The spirit of God living in us as God's people, and yet we wait for the day of the Lord, the big one. But we live in the midst of lots of days of the Lord where God is breaking in and he's doing things in the midst of our world and in our lives. And so I think the book of Joel is applicable to us. 
in our lives. Because the main themes, as I look at them, are that we got a sin problem, right? And I think we've really got a, a two-sided sin problem. One is we got we sin. The other side, which we see that it just kept causing like this spiral for God's people, is they didn't really care about their sin that much. Not only did they sin, but they just it wasn't that big of a deal to them. And they were so quick to go back to their sin. And so I think we have to take our sin seriously. We have to think about when I think of like the picture of the locust, like how much our sin destroys. Even when we tend to think it's not that big a deal, if we could only see what our sin does in relationships with God, in relationships with each other, and just the plan that God wants us to have, to live into, and the joy he wants us to experience, we don't know what we're missing out on because of our sin. And so just think about these questions for a minute. And I'm going to give you a couple examples of my own sin in a minute. I'm just going to do that. But you have your own, and I don't know what those are, and I'm not going to ask you to come up here and share them. Uh, But I know you have something that comes to mind, and I just want you to answer these questions just in your own mind. What regrets has your sin created? What do you wish you could go back and do over again if you could? What have you missed out on? What has it wasted? Where has it led you? What has it broken? Who has it hurt? I'm looking at our high schoolers because we have incredible high schoolers in this church, and it's fun to serve for a week with them and see their love for the Lord and see the impact that they're having on the world around them, knowing we've got awesome young people here. And it makes me think back when I think of my own high school years. I missed it. I spent probably six years of my life going my own way, doing my own thing, not trusting that the Lord had a plan for me, doing whatever I thought was going to make me happy. And I was walking down a dead-end road, and I look back, I like see... I love what I see in our high schoolers. But I also think, man, I miss an opportunity because of my selfishness, because of wanting to do my own thing. That's like crop that the the locusts have eaten that I never get back. That's why we're always encouraging you guys, like, keep following the Lord, keep trusting in him, keep seeking out his plan for your life so that you don't look back and realize you missed it for so many years. Instead, you look back and you think, wow, it's awesome the way that God used me. It's awesome the way that God touched people's lives as I just gave myself to him. And it's true for all of us, right? I think about where I have sought out my identity in my life. And I think this is one we might all struggle with, whether it's what we do for a living. I know one that was a weak spot for me was as my kids excelled in certain things, it's so easy for parents to find our identity in our kids and in our kids' accomplishments and what they're doing. And when things are great, we feel really good about ourselves. And when they're not doing so great, you know, or they lose the game or whatever, you're like, oh man, all of a sudden your week's ruined. It's like, why? That doesn't change who I am. That doesn't make any sense. But that was me a lot, I feel like. And honestly, it's idolatry to look at other things like that for our purpose and for our meaning 
And that's what we're putting all our hope in. That doesn't make sense for us to do, but it's easy to do. At least it has been in my life. And then sometimes I don't love my wife as well as I could or should. And I could talk about big things, but I'm going to talk about a small thing. Just this last week, we went to uh, Texas to go to a baseball game. And at the end of the game, actually during the game, and then also at the end of the game, she wanted to take a picture together because that's important to her. She wants to have memories of us doing things together. But I don't like doing that. I don't know why. I don't know why I think that 40,000 people in a stadium care about me and my wife taking a selfie together and why I'm self-conscious about that. But I'm always like, as soon as she starts asking, like I get quiet or I get in a bad mood or I'm like annoying probably. And I was driving to a wedding earlier this week and I like on the way, all of a sudden that hit me. I don't know why. And I'm like, you are so selfish that you would put what you think a bunch of people that don't, aren't thinking about you and they don't care about you, you put that as a higher priority than loving your wife. That might not seem like a big deal, but you just like one locust after another after another, that can start to devastate a relationship. If, if I just keep being selfish in so many kinds of ways, and Becky told me she was going to cheer when I was talking about this, but she didn't. Because <laughs> she, she said, I was outside when I heard you say that in the first service, and I was like, whoo! He's getting it. I don't know. But it's so true. Those things that seem little, that don't seem like a big deal, when it's dealing with selfishness and us putting ourselves first. And you may think of other things, whether it's just saying negative things to people or, or whatever. There's a million things we could be thinking of when it comes to sin. The question is, are our hearts broken over our sin? Do we care? Do we think it's a big deal? And Joel would want us to say, it's a really, really, really big deal. And it has huge consequences in your life. And so the question I asked myself, because I was talking to my son this week, I'm like, why don't I care most of the time? Like, why are there things that I know might be wrong or I should do differently, but I just, it's like, I want to rend my heart, but it just, like, how do you get there? How do you get a broken heart over things to care the way God cares about them? What can we do? Well, we can give our hearts to God in whatever state they're in. Whether it's hard or soft or broken or not, the first step is to give it to God and to trust that God wants our hearts. And then here's the list I kind of took from, from Joel and made my own. I'll go through this quickly. But again, however we have to do it to return to God, to turn our eyes back to him, away from all the distractions and the things that are getting in the way, to prioritize and remember. And I know in, as we read the scripture, like, you're probably not going to go home and put on sackcloth because you probably don't have any at home. You can get some at Hobby Lobby. But the whole point there was to make yourself uncomfortable, to be reminded every time it pricks you where he feels uncomfortable that you're in an uncomfortable place with sin and you need to turn to the Lord and ask for his help. Or fast. He talks so much about fasting. It's just giving up food. So when you feel the hunger pangs, you're like, okay, that reminds me. I'm in need for God to do something in my life. Whatever it takes, let's turn back to him. And to gather, to don't do it alone. That's why I love the small groups. And I love the youth group and all these communities that we have here because it's an opportunity for us when we struggle in our life with whatever it may be, the worst thing we can do is try to do it by ourselves. It's so easy to stay in sin when nobody else knows about it. 
and it's just you trying to figure it out on your own. But when we can have a trusted community of people, even one or two, that you know they're for you, they love you, and their love is unconditional, and you can say, you know what? I need to tell you about some stuff that I'm struggling with. One, you might find out that they're struggling with similar things, which is freeing for everybody to be able to talk. But it just makes it easier to walk forward and to have some accountability and to have people praying for you. Even going across the hall here in a few minutes when the service is over with a bunch of people in here who just want to pray for you, you don't have to give them any specifics at all. You can always walk in that room and just say, will you just pray for me? That's all I'm going to tell you. They'll do that. Or you can say, I'm struggling with something. I'm not going to tell you what it is, and they'll pray for you. You can be as vulnerable as you want or not, but they would love to pray for you. We need one another. We need to remember who we are and be a people set apart. If you've given your life to the Lord, you are a child of God. You are called to be set apart, to be different, to live a life of joy and peace and love in this world. And our sin ruins that all. It gets in the way. It takes us off track. And when we keep our mind on this is who I am, this is what I want to be, that helps us. And then finally, to plead for a broken heart, to ask the Lord through his Holy Spirit, who he has poured out on us and into your life, to soften your heart, to break your heart so that you will care about the things that are getting in the way of the great life and relationship he wants for you. I want to remind you as we end here that you and I are never beyond the reach of God's mercy and his restoration. You could be dealing with something that you've been walking with for 45 years, and today could be the day that you finally give it over and God breaks your heart and you start walking a different direction. You make a U-turn and everything changes. The walls come down. Relationships change. Your relationship with the Lord changes. And God's priority is to do whatever he can to turn you back to him. And how do we know our hearts are torn towards Jesus? It's because our life starts to look like his. The fruit becomes apparent. We no longer desire those things quite as much as we did. And it's not that you don't desire them. Sometimes temptation's always there. But it just becomes a little bit easier to say no and to walk God's path. And he gives us this incredible promise in Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And that's my prayer for you. It's my prayer for me, because we don't like to talk about the sin and the stuff we struggle with. And I'm sorry we're in a series all summer we get to talk about all this good stuff. But the whole point is that there's this incredible promise that God is merciful and he's gracious. And even though it's hard, when we turn to him, he promises grace and forgiveness. And that he will walk with us however we need. So let me pray for us now. Lord, thank you for your incredible love. Thank you for this book of Joel. There's these three chapters that talk about all kinds of crazy things, but the point, Lord, is that you love us. You've created us for something great, and we settle so easily for things that will ruin that. And out of your love, you do whatever you need to to turn us back. And so I just pray that even today, 
If some of us have things that are getting in the way of our relationship with you or others or just being the person you've called us to be, that you would help us, that you would break our hearts over those things. Make them tender. Help us to trust you. And give us people in our lives that we can trust, that will walk with us, encourage us, pray for us. Thank you for your grace. Pray it all in the powerful name of Jesus who died on the cross so that we could experience this grace. We pray it in his name. Amen.